Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhage of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, this, uh, today, I have a, a special colleague, Marianne Beaton, with me. Hi, Marianne. How are you today? I'm great, Roxanne. Thanks for having me here today. Thanks for taking the time. I, I know with your busy schedule, you know, and uh, with you always not being home, it was nice uh, that you could accommodate you know, uh, in because uh, I'm thinking of when I met Marianne, which would have been uh, way back. I was with Morneau Chappelle at that time, Morneau Chappelle, and uh, she worked uh, or was affiliated at that point with Greatest Life. So Marianne said, uh, works with workplace mental health, psychological safety, and she works predominantly in the areas of resolving, resolving conflict and building resilience. And she also is the director of strategy and collaboration for workplace strategies for mental health. Um, which, which provides free resources um, through Canada Life. And she's re- written multiple books um, around the, the area of um, mental health and well-being in the workplace. So Marianne, kind of, I, I know we just started to talk, and Marianne just just talking about um, what's happening with uh, people having a lot of cancellations with the coronavirus. Um, what are you finding with the fear that you're, you're hearing around the elements of what's happening out there in the workplace with, uh, with the coronavirus? Well, it's interesting because I look at um, the fear around the coronavirus with the fear around so many things in life, whether it's um, climate change or it's politics or it is um, injustice. And all of these things are serious concerns. And yet the level of anxiety um, can be debilitating for some people. And for other people, they can put it in perspective. They can say, what can I do about this? And if I can't do anything about it, um, which is usually uh, uh, not the case, it's usually some things you can do to protect yourself or to make a difference in the world. But if there's nothing I can do about it, then I'm not gonna worry. And if there is something, I will do it. But while I'm not doing that particular thing, washing my hands or making sure I stay out of crowded places, then I'm going to say it is what it is and live my life. I think some people where the anxiety gets so great, they actually put their life on hold and spend the time with repetitive negative thoughts of fear Mm -hmm. that really take away from opportunities um, for enjoying life. Absolutely, and fear is such a thing, right? Like, you know, whether it's uh, there's a right-sizing or a downsizing or a merger and acquisition or issues at home, you know, we're always juggling things on an ongoing basis. But to your point, when people start to catastrophize and, you know, you hear about the things, the stories about Costco and people are like, they're running out of toilet paper and, uh, you know, people are like having bunkers full of food and all those things. I, I, to your point, you, yes, you have to get prepared, 
but to what detriment are you kind of putting that pause button on on your life and what needs to get done until this happens and of course it's going to unfold like it needs to right and we know of people that almost their entire adult life has been spent in fear people in their 80s in their 90s that from the time they were very young and went through the depression went through the war they just believed that any minute now uh, the world was going to collapse and their entire life was spent in fear mm -hmm. whereas you can look at some of their peers who instead said yeah we went through some awful things so I'm going to embrace life. I'm going to love people. I'm going to enjoy while I can. And I think, Roxanne, that's the difference between being resilient and not being resilient. We are going to experience scary things. We're going to experience tragedy or loss or um, all, all sorts of frustrations and disappointments in life. But what we want to do is when we're not having to deal with that in the present moment. We want to be able to lift our eyes up, lift our attitude up and enjoy what we can. And it's so, it's so interesting, right? Because we know with, with neuroscience, like, I mean, all of us go into that fight, flight or freeze at any given point, right? We get triggered. You know, oftentimes when I will see clients, they'll say to me, help me learn how to get, not get triggered. And I said, okay, well, short of you and I being kind of six feet under, we're always going to get triggered. It's kind of what we do with it and how long we kind of stay in that, that fear-based mode of protection. So there's nothing that's going to, um, you know, obviously healthy preparation uh, to your point is very important. Um, but what's, what happens to a lot of people and whether I've been a manager through my life and I know you've been in lots of management uh, or director roles and you see the differences in personalities of how people kind of absorb fear and they get almost catatonic to the people that just kind of are able to, to take it in and just go with the flow. Um, and of course, with a lot of stresses that we're seeing out there, um, it, it's, it's cumulative and uh, we have so many things that kind of wear down at us on, a, on an ongoing basis. So it really becomes our, like the, our resp individual responsibility, but also within companies for companies to kind of think about what can they do around the issue of resilience. Well, so, and, you know, Roxanne, I talk about the um, common enemy mistake that's made in a lot of organizations where in order to bond with their uh, direct reports, leaders may start saying, yes, this thing, the coronavirus is really scary. Yes, corporate head office is really bad. Yes, the economy is sinking. And they believe that they're commiserating. But what the research shows is that if the leader is expressing hopelessness, if the leader is expressing victimization, that it actually depletes the energy and the hopefulness of their direct reports. And that we as leaders have a responsibility not to whitewash, not to pretend that this new directive or policy that came down is the greatest thing, but rather to say, it is what it is. How can we make the best of it for us? And to really redirect the fear to positive action, to minimize risk, to minimize the negative impact. 
And that's such a good important point because obviously I often, when I talk about authentic leadership, I talk about the awareness and that leader knowing themselves. Of course, they're human beings, but the more aware that they are, the more aware of how they understand their coping mechanisms and their stressors and how they kind of process information and how they relate to people, all those things become very vital so that they could take the time for themselves. So when they do go out and deliver a message around, uh, you know, things, let's use the current example of coronavirus, they may have some things going through their head, but they have to put that face frontward facing positive spin on it as much as possible so that because people we expect that from our leaders. Right. But I think that what the leaders get mixed up with is the difference between being authentic and putting that brave face on. And we're not asking them to pretend like they, it doesn't matter to them. We're asking them to say, I can't um, control it, but let's talk about what we can do to manage the risk for ourselves and not to pretend like it's ridiculous. There should be no reason for fear. Uh, we're all fine because it's just not true. Mm -hmm. Right. There is there is some level of risk, but it's manageable and there's ways to do that. And I think, you know, through the years of management and stuff like that, would you say that things have gotten better where managers are not like on the autocratic end where they perceive that I have to be this well put together individual that always has it in control. And now that people are able to kind of give us a bit more of a vein into to kind of them as a person, but also deliver in leadership. Yeah, so to um, borrow from Brene Brown, I think vulnerability is the new strength. It is when a leader can say, yes, I struggled when I started to do that too. I had a challenge in interacting with this type of person in the workplace. Here's how I dealt with it. It's a lot better than saying, you, what's the matter? Why aren't you getting this? You know, you should have this by now. Or why do you have problems with these coworkers? Is be authentically vulnerable. That doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that you're crying and whining. Mm -hmm. It just means that you're honest about the fact that you're human too. And that there's days, for instance, when somebody comes and says, I need to talk to you. This is going on. And you can say, you know what? That sounds important to you. I'm not in the right headspace right now. Can you give me a half an hour to get organized and then I'll talk to you? To be uh, vulnerable just means you're being more honest. And I, I absolutely agree with you. Based on the, some of the sectors, based on the industry, would you say that in certain industries, and you and I, I've worked in a lot of different industries also, um, some environments, you know, are more open and to that element of the leader can be a bit more authentic. Some, they talk about it, but I'm not sure that they deliver that. Yeah. And you know what? I almost see it across every sector now that there are more enlightened leaders. And we used to say, oh, well, you know, they're old school as if it was tied to an age. And what I'm finding is that people leading at every level in every sector, it's just a matter of their personal evolution. 
their personal mm -hmm. awareness, their uh, ability to have emotional intelligence. And it doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter how long they've been in the industry. Yes. And it doesn't matter what industry they're in. Of course, some of the more traditionally macho patriarchal uh, sectors um, may be a little slower to evolve to something that is considered to be more feminine. It doesn't mean it's more girly. It just mm -hmm. means that it's more emotionally aware. Um, but I see it everywhere mm -hmm. that, that we are making that change, that we are doing better when soldiers see their um, colleagues crash and burn. Mm -hmm. th they want to help. They want to make it better. And in order to do so, they have to tap into their own emotional impact from the work that they're doing. And that need to help others is often what's fueling their own self-awareness and their own evolution. And it, absolutely. I think, you know, in my work and dealing with different leaders in different sectors compared to say 20 years ago when I started in the field of EAP, it, it definitely has shifted. And now people are recognizing, I may not be, you know, what should I share first of all? You know, so how authentic should I be? That's the other thing. A lot of leaders go, well, I'm not really sure. You want me to be this authentic person? And they'll say that they, they're afraid to get so authentic that then there's no um, separation. Not that there should be separation, but to some degree, people have to take direction from you. Yeah. So I, you know, I talk about oversharing. And yes. when are we oversharing? If you think being authentic is telling everybody everything about you, you then you're, you're off base. Um, being authentic is don't tell a lie. Don't skew the truth in order to make yourself look better. Yes. Um, you share because you think it's going to help the other person, not because of how it will reflect on you. And there's, there's a huge difference between uh, the two approaches. Absolutely. And I think that's what happens, right? Because people start to listen to things and they want to be, you know, they go to courses and they're thinking, how am I going to do this? And maybe they kind of, the pendulum swings so far that they're like, okay, now I need some coaching to be able to find the middle a little bit more. Right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the, you know, resilience, obviously, we all want to learn more about it. We all want to make our, our, our environments, be it at home or at, you know, in workplaces, we all want to be more resilient. And to your point, when we uh, just got on before we were talking is that in life, we're going to see things, we're going to deal with things on an ongoing basis. What are some of the key resiliency factors that you know, from being out in, in kind of the research world and working with Ganda Life and just in uh, your work, that are some of the things that are important for people to think about implementing either at work or, I mean, obviously we bring ourselves to work so that they could be a bit more resilient uh, out there in the world. Yes. I, I think there's um, definitely specific elements that are valuable to know. One is self-awareness. If I believe that all of my emotions are caused by external factors, by you, by my work, by the, you know, the news station, then I feel out of control all the time. When I understand 
that my emotions are based on my thoughts, my reactions, um, that I have a lot of control over them. I don't have control over what happens to me, but I absolutely have control over the way I react to it. So that's the first thing, become self-aware. And then you can drill down even further. If I know that I do react to certain things in certain ways, start to name them. If I know that every time somebody criticizes me, that I get flooded with shame that results in me being angry, then if I know that's going to be my reaction, I can stop and think, where's that shame come from? Where's that anger come from? What do I think is unfair? Because anger is a reaction to what is a perceived or actual injustice. So when I'm angry, what do I think is not fair? And what can I do about that? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the next step that I think is so important. We need to know why we're reacting. So you talked about triggers. Why why do we have these involuntary reactions? Then we talk about our reaction to stress in general. And we have physiological, we have emotional, and we have behavioral reactions to stress. But if we don't know what they are, especially the early warning signs, we continue, usually until we crash and burn. We don't know what the source of our stress is because we've been stressed so long that we now think it's just who we are, right. um, which is another phrase that always um, amuses me. That's who I am. No, it's not. That's what you do. It is not who you are. Who you are is this perfect being, but what you do is stress or overreact or withdraw or whatever. It's what you do. Um, Another element that is important is to understand what stressors are in your life right now. And mm -hmm. that may sound counterintuitive. Let's sit down and think about all the things that stress us. But if we're not aware of them, they have a tendency to build up. Even things called micro stressors, that there's so much, they seem insignificant. Can't. But if I bump my knee on a table every day because it's just in the way of me walking and I'm irritated by this every day, my um, coping skills are going to be depleted dealing with that pain, that physical pain and that annoyance. So eliminating these little things that we have control over mm -hmm. make a lot of sense because then when we're dealing with a stressor that we have less control of, like being a caregiver of a family member who's mm -hmm. dying, uh, we can't say, okay, don't die or, you know, right. don't be sick. We have more energy to cope with that in a way that we won't regret in the end which mm -hmm. is important, right? To behave in a way that is consistent with our love for that person. Um, and it's not taken up being annoyed with bumping my knee. Right, right. Yeah. What a, what a good way to look at it because, you know, like to your point, a lot of people say, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. Uh, you know, it's, the, it's a tough quarter. <laughs> I've been traveling a lot or, you know, my kids, you know, have been um, going through a lot. And we all have multiple balls to your point, but it, it's a small microscopic things that people could address that they can take a hold of. Right. But I think a lot of people don't and it becomes that cumulative effect. You know, it's kind of like, 
you know, I'm, I'm a little bit mildly irritated to explosive anger. If you, if you don't kind of address it along the way and kind of try to figure out what's, what's putting me in that state before you know it, you're kind of along the continuum. And then maybe you have an interaction at work that ends up being a performance related concern that goes to a manager or supervisor versus kind of trying to figure out some of the things that you can do. Yeah. So in reference to um, psychological safety, which is your, your, your space and um, stress, what are some of the things that, you know, people listening, um, you know, out there that if they are stressed and, you know, they're like, I often say that when we're stressed, we're mis we might misperceive potential things and, we might kind of, you know, I might perceive that if you've raised your voice, Marianne, that you're screaming at me, but in fact, you're maybe not doing that because we kind of look through a different lens. So for the frontline employee that maybe is potentially going through some things and thinking, you know, I think I'm being psychologically harassed, you know, what, what kind of guidance would you give them? So in our plan for resilience, we have something called the four A's. And they come from the University of Chicago, and we adapted them a bit for the workplace. And it's that you look at a stressor and understand when we're stressed that our executive functioning, our decision-making is compromised because we're stressed. And when we look at a stressor through the four A's, what we're forcing ourselves to do is consider the pros and cons. So... I haven't looked at it from the point of view of feeling harassed, but let's try it. So one of the A's is avoid. Now, a lot of people will say, well, if you're avoiding a stressor, you're just in denial. But I've got a colleague who is um, a recovering alcoholic who, when they travel, they call the hotel and say, empty the minibar. I want no alcohol in my room. And it's like we talked about with the micro stressors. Why should that person have to deal with that stressor when they can avoid it altogether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in a situation where you feel like you're being harassed or bullied, the first question is, could you avoid them? And what are the pros and the cons of doing that? And, and to really look at both sides so that you don't make a decision that is difficult. The next A is accept. Can you accept that this person is going through their own stuff? that it maybe isn't even about you and that you can put them in perspective. It's their issues. It's their challenges Mm -hmm. and you're not going to bother with them. You're not going to react to them. So that's another a, um, the next one is to adapt. Can you change the way you interact with them? Could you sit down with them and say, you know what? Uh, Roxanne, you're a good person. I've worked with you for years uh, and I've seen who you are. And lately, it seems like we've been having a more difficult relationship. I would like that to change. Can we talk about how we could do that? Mm -hmm. And you can take control of trying to adapt that relationship. The next one is alter. And that is, can you change the situation altogether? Can you alter the external environment? Could you move your office? Could you get a different job? And all of this isn't to say any one of those is the right answers, but what it does is it takes you out of your emotional approach to the stressor, puts you into a much more objective approach as you look at the pros and cons. And when you go through this exercise, sorry, 
And that resource, by the way, is free online. But when you go through this exercise, you may um, come up with a different idea altogether than what you do in the exercise, but it's because you've shifted from an emotional reaction to it to a more um, rational reaction. Executive functioning, because like I, I, you know, I often say, once our logical prefrontal cortex goes off, then we kind of have a bit of a street party in our brain <laughs> with all the things kind of pinging off each other. And uh, so that's, that's an amazing resource. I will, I will put the link to um, you know, uh, the Candle Life resources in our show notes because th- that's a nice approach. So avoid. Accept. Uh, accept alter alter or adapt awesome so i think that's something that people can apply today whether it's at whether it's at home or whether it's at work that's something that really if you kind of go through that logical exercise that would be able to you know unless you kind of go through it and then you realize it's an ongoing issue at which point i would say you have to kind of decide if it's at work how you're going to address it like you know what next steps you could take to maybe go to uh, maybe your supervisor have a conversation with somebody in HR, those types of things. And obviously there's policies and procedures according to free to be psychologically safe at work. Right. And all of those hopefully will come up through this exercise that those are options, right? Do you file a complaint or how do you go about managing this for yourself? There's another resource I just want to mention for those who are listening, who are in that place right now, and it's called protecting yourself against bullying. And it was written um, along with people who were also dealing with depression and that that bullying just was a straw that's breaking the camel's back. It's that thing that's just too much. And it's about how to protect yourself until it's resolved, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the moment, you still have to take care of yourself. And uh, the four A's are great to think about what you could do about it. But what are you doing right now to protect yourself? Absolutely, because you have to continue to be able to function and do your job, you know, run things outside of work and those types of things. So being able to protect yourself to be able to continue to function. And if it's a bigger issue, obviously having the steps to go out and take that next step. Now, Marianne, in reference to leaders, right? Which, you know, we have obviously the, the employee and then we have leaders. What are some of the things that leaders could have, you know, in their, in our work environments, you know, I know when I was in corporate, <laughs> stressors were there and I know it's just quantified as, as we've gone and we've really had to, to your point, really step back and recognize um, how we need to take care of ourselves because the stressors and the rapidity of our economic, you know, and economic world and with the digital economy, all those things aren't going away. Uh, they're happening and with the impact of AI, all those things are going to keep coming at us. And with leadership, you know, what kind of things are you seeing out there with leaders? What are some of the pressures that they're talking about in this knowledge economy um, that they're having to adapt or pivot to? Yeah, I think there's several things that happen. And one of them is that people often get promoted to a leadership position, a manager, a supervisor, because they were really good at doing the job. So what that means is, first of all, they don't understand um, the struggle to learn something new, to uh, uh, you know create good habits at work, because they never had to do it. And secondly, is that they're not trained 
um, in many cases, well enough to manage the emotional reactions of other people. And so for some leaders, whether they're union reps or they're um, on the management side, they go to help someone and they get attacked or um, told that they're part of the problem and they become traumatized, not in the big post-traumatic stress disorder, but that now they are dealing with anxiety about saying or doing the wrong thing. And it's a tough place to be. I don't envy people in management positions. I know it seems like, oh, they got promoted. It must be great. It's a whole different level of responsibility. It's a whole different level of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And well, they really want to do the right thing, um, their fear and their frustration can be that the people that are leading them are just giving it to them in a very concrete way. This is what you have to do, get it done. There's no room for, but this is how I feel about it, or can we talk about it? And if you are not emotionally intelligent enough yourself, you turn around from a fear base and try to direct your employees. Mm -hmm. What I try to say to leaders is because you're given something, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't know how to question the way that it's going to be applied. And that's not to say, this is ridiculous, I can't do it. But to go away and say, let me think about Um, how I'm going to get that done. Is it okay if I come back to you and we can review it? And you simply look at how many people do you have? What are they asking? How many hours will it take? And you go back to your boss, the senior leader and say, okay, what you're asking me to do takes, you know, a hundred hours. What we're already doing takes 500 hours. That's 600 hours. I have this many people That leaves us with about 150 hours unaccounted for. How would you like me to prioritize? Just very concrete, very straightforward. The thing is that many leaders think if they do this, they will either be accused of being insubordinate or not a team player or ineffective. My experience has been that's never true. If you can actually show the numbers and be in that very straightforward approach most leaders are appreciative and will say okay this will go we'll let that go for now we'll just focus on this or let's see we'll get you some more help it's because then it's a business decision it's a numbers game it's not emotional how could you give me this much you don't care (laughs) absolutely and then you're not so taking it from a pragmatic um, perspective and kind of saying, okay, well, I'm overwhelmed. I'm upset. My employees are upset at me. We're not, we have this much more being pushed down from upper management and the front line are freaking out. And the, you know, this, the middle manager oftentimes gets sandwiched into that pressure cooker, I call it. And yeah. that was something that I dealt with all the time when I was in my executive role was that managers always felt like they had, they felt like they were in no man's land oftentimes, and they wanted to find some safety. So this pragmatic kind of steps makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, when we, we come from an emotional part of our brain where we're, we're being reactive, then we kind of get gray in the way we communicate. And then of course, if you're going to senior leadership, you need to be more 
um, you, like you said, you have to come from a business perspective to say, this is what I'm seeing. Th this is how we, this is what I see will happen if we kind of proceed in this end. We're going to burn out people. We're going to lose our good staff, those types of things based on the numbers and those. So I think definitely from a business model to look at the business case that you can present versus kind of, like you said, being reactive and I'm, I'm so upset and people are screaming at me. Uh, and then there's, you know, it, it becomes harder to come to a pragmatic solution from that space. Mm -hmm. So Marianne, uh, this, this is always a pleasure. I'm sure you and I could keep, keep going on and on and on with a lot of things, um, you know, based on um, our, our backgrounds and things like that. So with, uh, with yourself, um, if people are wanting to get a hold of you, I will do put all the links to the free resources through Canada Life. Um, what, where can people get a hold of you if they're interested in um, having you speak or do some work with you? Um, so my, um, they can get in touch with me through the Workplace Strategies for Mental Health website, through the Contact Us, or at Marianne at MarianneBaton.com. Okay, perfect. So I will put that in the show notes. So again, what did I learn? I think I, I like the concept of the four A's, right? That really yeah. is, it's quick. And I'm sure people listening are thinking the same thing. So again, in my day, I'm thinking, you know, whether it's, you know, having to deal with uh, one of my customers and I, you know, all, we all get into that, you know, issue sometimes of something coming up to really sit back, try to reflect on it. Uh, think about how could I react a little bit differently and then approach it after. So I love that tip. So thanks you so much. And I will put the link for that for anybody wanting to, um, you know, kind of apply it and learn a little bit more about some of the other things that uh, Marianne's provided. So for everyone, thanks so much again for tuning in. It's uh, Roxanne Durhage. You know, I work in the arena of mental health and wellness. And if you're needing any uh, information on leadership, please go to RoxanneDurhage.com. So Marianne, thanks so much again and take care. And thank you for being a role model for what resilience looks like. Well, thanks so much, Marianne. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhage.com blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.